Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin. It has been another busy week, and we only have time for a few topics, so we were just debating what those might be, and we have landed on a few that captured our attention the most. And uh, we are going to start with plant-based seafood, or as a catch-all that we've decided on, alternative seafood. We welcome feedback on that term, but we have to encapsulate cell-based seafood, plant-based seafood. Uh, You know, it's all moving so, so quickly. So we had more uh, activity there. It seems like, you know, pretty much all of every single week, we're going to see an investment in a plant-based company or a new launch or uh, a new fundraise. Um, The fact is that this segment is not going away, even though there are some that are saying that the plant-based sector might be slowing down. I certainly don't see any signs of that. It seems to me that it's, if anything, picking up quicker and quicker. And I think the more that uh, the focus on sustainability uh, and sustainable business um, uh, is in the eye of, of not just um, NGOs or it was before, but also consumers and uh, and lenders uh, and investors, then, then I think we're going to only see this grow. So um, maybe we could start, uh, John, with you, because um, kind of an old uh, debate has risen back up, or I don't want to say debate, but an old, maybe an old issue or an issue that continues to be a thorn in the side of the seafood industry has, has risen up. You were kind of one of the first to put a lot of attention on plant-based seafood when it was really ramping up. You covered it quite a bit, made some... Um, provocative commentaries on it, and and you and I had some good arguments about it. What happened this week? Uh, The National Fisheries Institute President, John Connolly, um, spoke uh, at a uh, a meeting, Alaska uh, Pollock Association meeting. So what did John say, and and what what do you think the the industry needs to be, um, how, how does the industry need to be framing things now at this stage? John at the at the gap meeting um, he basically uh, and this is a point he's made for quite a while he, he talked quite a bit about getting the fish labeled properly his feeling and the feeling of a lot of others in the industry to be honest is that they're riding the coattails of seafood's good um, you know, profile out there as far as nutrition and all that they're riding that coattail under that halo and not being totally honest uh in their labeling in their marketing uh, that this, these have no seafood uh th- these products have no seafood at all in them so um that's been a bug in the bonnet of a lot of folks in the industry and there is no labeling yet. There's efforts underway to clarify what the labeling should be on these. So, um, yeah, that that's the essence of uh, what John was concerned with uh, in his talk. So, um, naturally, that you know that gets people engaged because 
uh, as I said, a lot of people in the industry are struggling to figure out, you know, how to handle this new quote unquote competitor. There, there's been sort of two approaches that we've seen here with plant and, and cell based seafood is we've seen some people going to, uh, to, to partner or launch their own. I mean, uh, Maruha Nichiro, their seafood connection, which is uh, a, a big Dutch trader subsidiary of, of uh, Maruha Nichiro. They have launched a plant-based item. Uh, you've seen um, uh, Bumblebee Seafoods, the big tuna manufacturer here in the U.S. Um, they've partnered with uh, Good Catch, which is a uh, an imitation tuna producer. Um and, you know, the, the, there's the other side of it, which is, you know, to kind of rail against it or, or um, you know, kind of kind of position your, yourself um, as an opponent. So, John, it's been a couple of years since the, uh, the National Fisheries Institute really had this kind of on their uh, agenda. What's changed since then? I mean, certainly a lot more companies have jumped in, but, but what's on your view? What's changed since then? Well, a few things have changed. Uh, certainly, I would argue that plant-based foods in general has really gone mainstream. Uh, I mean, McDonald's is serving plant-based burgers now. So, uh, you know, that is probably the most significant thing. So, to me, that means, obviously, it's not going away. How big will it get vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis seafood in this case? I don't know. I mean, let's take a look right now. So sales of just plant-based seafood in 2020 were 12 million with an M versus uh, sales of legit seafood, real seafood, 100 billion. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a pretty big gap for them to cover if they want to be <laughs> legitimately challenging us. So I'm not sure we need to be as concerned as we might be. And, you know, if you look at meat, let's look at plant-based meat, right? Much larger category. Uh, plant-based meat sales at, re uh, or plant-based meat sales last year were 1.4 billion. Plant, uh, real meat or animal meat, I guess, uh, sales were 82 billion last year just at retail didn't even include food service so um it's gonna it's going to be a niche ultimately in my opinion however you know they are doing things that i really don't like and i know john Connolly and the nfi members and others in the industry don't like either to market their products they have to disparage seafood the way it's harvested or farmed currently you know that you know the oceans can't support the harvesting all the all the old saws that you hear all the time i i don't like that i think that's disingenuous if your product is so stellar you know uh, let's talk about it being tasteful and all that but this is marketing in the climate change era where you know you are marketing things based on how they'll protect the climate or how they'll do less impact uh, to, to the earth. So you have that in there for sure. Um, the other thing is, and you know, it's, it's clearly the case, these are highly processed foods, highly processed. And any dietitian I know will tell you, 
don't even shop in the center of the store at the grocery store shop the edges where the fresh and <clears throat> natural foods are so i don't think that's really come to the fore yet about how processed these plant-based foods are and when it does you know that may that may change things a little bit so you know that's those are a couple of the thoughts i have the other thing that is more worrisome to me is the rapid acceleration of cell cultured seafood and this has got a lot of serious money behind it a lot of serious companies and it is seafood it, it they take the cell of a pollock or whatever fish you want and go in their lab and do what they do and they get whatever they want if they want a little portion or what that is a lot more serious threat to, to me than these guys mixing lentils into, you know, shrimp or whatever. So, I don't know. That's that's kind of where I see the situation right now. There's nothing wrong with lentils, John. I like lentils. But uh, but I will say that you're absolutely right on the uh, on the cell-based side of things, uh, especially when you've seen big companies, Nomad Foods, which owns uh, Igloo and Bird's Eye, big frozen brands in the UK and in Europe. Um, they now have put it on their agenda. Um, Mitsubishi, Thai Union, as you said, John, massive companies involved in this. And I think it's actually exciting and really promising um, because it does address uh, some of these food supply issues. It, it, it addresses a lot of interesting problems. Now, again, like plant-based, is it going to make up the majority of what people eat? No. But I think plant-based is interesting because I'm not sure how far, as you said, how far is it moving the needle for seafood in terms of carbon emissions? And I don't know that it's moving things that far um, when you look at land use and water use and uh, how the manufacturing processes uh, work. I know there's been some, some comparisons done, and I know that um, the Good Food Institute, which is, uh, produces some really interesting research on it, um, I, I know there's been... Um, some analyses that says that the carbon footprint is much lower. But, um, you know, there's been a lot of research come out uh, about uh, the carbon impact from seafood and from uh, aquaculture in particular, salmon aquaculture in particular, that has shown that the carbon uh, emissions are, are remarkably low and certainly far lower than beef or poultry uh, or, um, or pork or any of the other terrestrial animals. So um, I, seafood may sort of escape having to deal with this in a, in, a, in a really big way. I can see why the industry would want some of these things to be changed in terms of the, the, the nomenclature, but I just um, I can't imagine that that will be a priority by labeling organizations. It's interesting because... Um, uh, uh, John Evans, our colleague uh, in Brazil, he just filed a story that um, the Brazilian uh, Aquaculture Association is actually suing um, the Brazilian, I believe it's health ministry or whoever is in charge of labeling down there um, for uh, over uh, to try to prevent uh, companies from using the term seafood and marketing their products as well. So there is kind of some movement here. Is it, the most, is it the most important thing to spend time on right now? I don't know. 
So let's move over to uh, to aquaculture in the United States. Uh, speaking of um, of low carbon emissions and food security, um, aquaculture in the United States. This is something that I feel like we've talked about for twenty years, John and um, Rachel. You've been kind of on the on the front of covering this, so. Have we seen any progress this week with a new bill being filed? Um, it's sometimes uh, a, a difficult for um, for non-Americans to understand our Byzantine process. Um, but but what do we what do we find out this week, and and where does that put us? Yeah, I mean, we found out basically that um, the what's known as the um, Aquaculture Act, um, the Aqua Act. I'm getting actual nomenclature. The understanding it's the advancing the quality and understanding of american aquaculture act of 2021 it was introduced yesterday reintroduced um this is about the third time uh, this bill has been introduced into uh the congress it plans to establish a national standard for what it calls sustainable offshore aquaculture and would designate NOAA um as the lead federal agency for Kind of overseeing that and this bill was also introduced last year pretty much the exact same version of the bill um, under the trump administration when they issued uh that sweeping executive order uh really calling uh to allow offshore aquaculture in the u.s and promoting american seafood competitiveness and economic growth um the bill this year like in previous years is sponsored in the senate right now by roger wicker he's a republican from Mississippi. He um, has been a proponent of this bill probably every time it's been introduced, I think. And um, he co-sponsored that this year with Marco Rubio, as well as Brian Schatz of Hawaii, who is the Democrat on that bill. Um, but it's kind of tough. You know, this bill gets introduced every year and it kind of doesn't go anywhere beyond introduction. So it's really hard to say what this will do for the offshore aquaculture sector, sector in the U.S., um, but it's, you know, we'll be following it and then see if, uh, maybe it can make a dent. Okay. John, your view, are we going to have offshore aquaculture in the United States during our lifetimes? Nope. Okay. No, no, nobody. Nope. No, I, 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 <laughs> I, I honestly hope we do. I'm not trying to be a wise ass, but I, I okay. Uh, let's see. I've been doing this for a little while and, no, the promise of offshore aquaculture has been uh, trotted out every year for 20 years or more. NOAA was spearheading it forever. They had an office of aquaculture. They probably still do. I don't even know. But in, they never got it to go anywhere. And like Rachel said, this is the third rendition with this bill. Um, the timing, it's coming in at the end of the congressional session. So, you know, take that for what it is. Um, I mean, Trump's executive order has probably done more for development of offshore aquaculture than anything in the last two decades. I mean, now we have some areas identified as kind of, uh, I guess, pilot or incubation areas off California and Florida where, you know, we we pres uh, presumably could begin to build these offshore aquaculture um, uh, projects, but um, 
you know, do you see any money rushing in? That's like, okay, is there any, look at land base, money's flowing through there, like, you know, somebody's at a casino, you know, but do you see it flowing in here? No, you don't see it flowing in here. Why? Because there's nothing to flow into. The risks are too high. There's no structure. There's no regulation. There doesn't seem to be any real um, force that is is at the center of this to make it happen. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but no, I don't I don't see it happening. Well, I disagree. I I do think there's going to be some forward progress here. Uh, whether or not this particular bill uh, gets through in this session and, and how that all progresses, I I really feel like offshore aquaculture, land-based is is maybe the first the first kind of aquaculture. Uh, I mean, it's been around for forever, but um, land-based salmon, uh, full grow-out land-based salmon. Is something that NGOs uh, and and, um, and and others have viewed now as part of this circular economy, as part of the, the, a sustainable uh, food system, and I think that's actually we're seeing some shifts in how uh, the world views uh, aquaculture when they see uh, offshore systems and they think about the potential for offshore systems. Um, there are a lot of opponents to offshore aquaculture. There's there's a, a big push by the Biden administration for offshore wind uh, on both coasts, and that will move forward despite opposition. There's similar types of opposition. It's you know usually people that are um, wealthy landowners that that kind of want to keep their view, or uh, it can be fishing interests, which. I mean, let's be frank, the fishing sector is is not uh, in these areas that are proposed is not growing, uh, whether it's the uh, the Gulf or um, in the in the Northeast, they're not growing. We know wild fish isn't going to grow. And I think there is this awareness that aquaculture will need to be part of the solution. And I think you're seeing um, aquaculture wrapped, folded into the concept of the blue economy, which I think has a lot of a lot of momentum behind it, fishing. Mm, I don't think fishing's going away, but as I said, it's not going to grow. It's the the amount of fish that's been produced has been consistent for years and years and years. Um, so the idea of the emerging blue economy of where money's going to go into, a lot of it is going to be, I think, a nexus of offshore uh, offshore wind and you know, seaweed, wave power, all these things. Um, there's a lot of excitement and, and a lot of money going into it. But uh, you're right, John, that without a framework to invest, it's going to be very difficult for people to, to come into it. But, um, you know, I, I don't think never, but I think, you know, I do think you're right. It's going to be some, or I think there'll be some time, some, some time before we get there, but I don't think never. But tell me this, tell me this, Drew. So, in a very short period of time in the United States that has virtually no aquaculture except catfish and a little little bit in Hawaii uh, for, for, for the most part. In a very short period of time, tons of money has gone into projects, land-based salmon projects in Maine, in the West Coast, elsewhere. And just overnight, literally overnight. Meanwhile, <laughs> a 
uh, a grander kind of uh, offshore aquaculture plan has been discussed literally for decades, decades, and still nothing. So how can you have something that has been so discussed, has been the subject of proposed legislation, lots of lobbying efforts, blah, blah, blah. How can you have that just sit here empty with virtually no momentum? And over here, you have this fledgling industry that overnight is is, is leading the U.S. as far as interest in aquaculture, investment in aquaculture, and, you know, may ultimately be uh, the form of aquaculture that defines uh, th that sector in the U.S. Well, I think I think a couple of things we can bank on are that um, in the United States, capitalism is one of our primary religions, and I think that uh, I think that as money flows into these uh, these these. Rather, as it's clear that there's money to be deployed and capital to be deployed, the wheels get greased awfully quickly. Um, I would never, never infer that politicians are swayed by lobbyists and swayed by any kind of money. But I have a suspicion that as, uh, as these industries develop and if they're good for constituents, which I think they, they are in many cases, especially for coastal jobs, uh, as there, as the money gets put onto the table and people see, hmm, this could really uh, develop, then suddenly the rules start to change pretty quickly. And I'll note, you know, one thing that's interesting, John, is you mentioned the land-based sector. That's all Norwegian money. You know, that that's all from primarily, as of now, from Norwegian investors, uh, be they private or public, and. Part of the rationale behind that is that there's an awareness that in Norway there is a limited, uh, limited amount of, 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 of places to, to grow for their aquaculture sector. Um, and in general, there's, there's limits at least to cold water species, which salmon is the, the species that is in most demand by far and likely to remain there for a long time to come. So I think there is going to be a lot of capital kind of sloshing around looking for a home. And I do think that the United States, from a food security standpoint and from all the awareness on, on climate and seeing climate as a security risk, there may be some change there, you know, but ultimately it's the money. Yeah, I hope you're right. And let me be clear so I don't get a lot of email, but I, I support all the efforts underway to get offshore aquaculture off the ground. And I, I really hope it works. I'm just at this time at this present moment i i don't see it happening anytime soon well let's see where uh things end up and we'll keep on top of it and there's plenty of people that are backing it trying to make it happen and um yeah we shall see okay let's go to another area that um, absolutely is not seeing any growth um going the other direction um, and that's British Columbia and the salmon farming industry in that province. It has been um, quite a few years uh, for that uh, province and for the industry up there. Um, it's been rough. There's been uh, a lot of dissent and, and arguments. There's been um, kind of a real uh, shift in 
in prioritizing First Nations uh, rights uh, in in Canada, uh, which is which is what a, a lot of the uh, disputes have to do with. Um, but recently, um, the big issue has been how and when salmon farms are moved out of one particular area. Uh, it's part of a, a larger continuum of, of salmon farms being um, being moved uh, into closed containment systems. But Rachel, you were um, you had enough resilience to sit through some very, very lengthy uh, uh, legal arguments. So tell us what is the latest for uh, the, the main salmon farming companies in British Columbia? Yeah, it was like a five day hearing in the federal court. So I got to hear them say my lady to the judge, which I appreciated because um, being a U.S. citizen, I only I don't get to hear that much in the courts and I appreciated <laughs> it. But um, <laughs> on another note, um, yeah, there is um, it's a really fascinating case. Um, it really brought to light what's going on on both sides of the issue, um, really brought to light how arbitrary and unfair uh, the minister's decision last December to phase out all net pen um, aquaculture from Discovery Islands in BC by, by June of 2022, how tough that's been on the company's uh, movie in particular, which has 19 sites operating in that area. It represents about 30% of movies production in British Columbia, which is pretty big. Um, and they really, the companies um, claim that they really had no idea what this minister was discussing with First Nations, what her plans were, until about five days before she made the decision, um, a decision that, you know, in fact, affects an entire industry and uh, several jobs and, and lots of money um, in the province. So they really brought that to light uh, during their arguments and made some pretty good points about, um, you know, how uh, odd the decision seemed, um, given that, you know, the minister had kind of been discussing with them otherwise about a 2025 transition. Uh, for the province overall to transition away from net pen farming. And all of a sudden they have to make a change to one of their key areas by uh, 2022. So that was kind of their argument. And on the other side of it was um, um, the First Nations and kind of their argument was that um, it's actually un, um, a constitutional obligation of the country of Canada to respect um, the rights and titles of First Nations in those regions um, that actually have territorial and Aboriginal uh, right and title to the property that movie operates on, movie and other companies. And they are saying that, uh, you know, the minister's decision, it does not have to um, be clarified to movie and other companies. Um, the First Nations did not want the companies involved in these consultations. And uh, there's a UN, uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that Canada follows that allows the, um, the minister to make these kind of decisions and requires the minister make these kind of decisions. So um, it's going to be interesting to kind of see how this judicial review goes and what it means for the companies. So uh, also this week, movie announced it would uh, temporarily close as a result of this decision, temporarily close uh one of its uh hatcheries in bc um yeah which i've been to it's it's kind of an amazing uh hatchery it is i mean 
at least when I was there, it was very state of the art. And I think they have put a lot of investments into it. Um, and they were pretty direct. Um, obviously, there's politics and, and communications at, at play here, but they were pretty direct in linking this closure and the job, the the associated job losses to um, to the minister's decision and to the Trudeau administration in, in general. Yeah, they, they said they are going to close that hatchery by May of next year. Um, it means that t- about 70 employees um, or sorry, 17 employees are impacted by the, that specific decision. Um, overall, about 70 employees have been let go as a result of the decision to phase out operations at Discovery Islands. Um, so that is the really sad part of it is that people's jobs are at stake um, and it's really not clear what those workers are going to do at this point. I know uh, movies trying to kind of figure out how to reorganize things. Uh, but again, the company is just grappling with kind of making changes very quickly. Now, there's a new fisheries minister that's been named uh, a new head of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Um, there was a lot of um, congratulatory um, messages sent out by the industry and welcoming, welcoming her into the new role. Is there any signs, though, that, I mean, she's still a member of the Liberal uh, Party. Is there any signs at all that that's going to change the trajectory of moving BC salmon farming to close containment systems by 2025? I don't know. She is very kind of staunchly a supporter of uh, the previous minister, Bernadette Jordan's decision. Uh, I don't see her really moving far from that. Uh, She seems like she is pretty staunchly with the Liberal Party and making the transition out of net pen salmon farming in British Columbia by 2025. Um, so I'm not sure the companies are going to see much of a change in terms of policy. So what's the next thing for us to, to watch out for uh, as this uh, progresses? What are the next sort of red letter dates? Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's still kind of an anyone knows what's going to happen scenario. Um, at some point, this federal judge is going to make a ruling on the judicial hearing, um, if that ruling can re- reverse anything about this decision is a little unclear. But again, if, if uh, the companies win uh, this ruling, they can always take their deci- their uh, request to have the de- decision looked at to a higher court. And you know, if they get it to the highest court, the Canada Supreme Court, they could potentially get the decision repealed. Um, not sure how likely that is, but um, that might be one way that they could move forward. Um, If they are trying to change something, it's not very likely they're going to get very far um, in terms of what the Canada government might do um, with the new fisheries minister. Well, as always, going to be interesting to keep track of. So why don't we end it there? Uh, Plenty of other news that you can find on intrafish.com. You can sign up for our newsletters there. Uh, we're operating 24-7 because we've got reporters all over the place. Remember that you can drop a line to us. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, All our reporters are on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter, uh, and you can reach out and email them, of course, uh, with story ideas or feedback. We really want to hear from uh, from you out there in the industry and uh, and hear from you what what types of stories you think we should be looking at and what what things are going on that... that, uh, that should be on our radar. Uh, you can get us anytime at editorial at intrafish.com. Let us know what's up. All right, folks, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week.